What's up, folks? It's Crispin Schroeder here with the Extra Crispy Podcast, a podcast of curious conversations with all kinds of interesting people. And today is no exception to the rule. Today, I have a conversation with Silicon Boone. Silicon Boone is a guy who grew up Amish in Kentucky, and later on as an adult, he got really inspired by the work of Carl Sagan, and he's a fascinating songwriter and has released his first solo album called The Reaches, which is kind of a concept album about space. So uh, really good stuff on there. Um, Actually, the whole album finally released. He's released a few singles over the past few months, and the whole album dropped the day after we recorded this episode, but I'm a few days behind on editing. So we'll get to that in just a moment. I want to remind you folks that uh, you can support this podcast by visiting our Patreon page, patreon.com, and you can look for Extra Crispy Podcast. Just a few bucks a month, man. Give up one of your Starbucks fancy coffees, and you know you can you can help this podcast move forward. It takes a lot of work, a lot of time. I love doing it, but I think we're to the point where we want to we want to kick up the quality a little bit and come out with episodes more regularly. But it takes time and money to do that. So if you want to support this, go over to Patreon, and we would really appreciate it. So. Let's head to this extra crispy, curious conversation with Silicone Boone. And this episode's going to feature not only a conversation, but lots of the tracks from the album as well. So lots of good stuff in here. Let's do this. Here I am with Silicone Boone, who is a very interesting character, comes from an Amish background, and has released his first solo album, which is a concept album about space That's and right. science. And, uh, yeah. A lot of stuff. Tell me about the, Just tell me about yourself a little bit here. Sure. Well, I, I chose the name Silicone Boone because, um, one, I, I'm, I'm really interested in, in frontier stuff. And uh, I'm from Kentucky. I grew up in Kentucky. And so Daniel Boone is maybe the most famous American frontiersman, and he's a Kentucky boy. And he fought at the Alamo, didn't he? Yeah. Uh, did he? I th- or maybe that was a different one. I, I should that, know. I'm from Texas initially. I think at least. he might predate that, but I'm going to um, brush up on my Texas history. Yeah, sorry. but he was. Uh, <laughs> he helped build. He helped build basically K- Kentucky, or uh, you know, like communities and forts and so on. Probably not. I don't know anything about him personally. I just know he was a frontiersman, and he's the the most famous Kentuckian. And he and, he made the coonskin cap. Yeah, he's uh, famous for that, I guess. <laughs> Is that part and, of your show? No, it's not. <laughs> it should be. It should be. It should be, right. So I, 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 I uh, joined that with silicone. 
uh, both as kind of a play on words for the era we live in, which is just it's just practically artificial for the most part with the internet and all that. And uh, then also just my own, um, I would say I explore uh, in the mind yeah. so that I don't actually do it literally. So for that reason, I called myself Silicon Boom. Cool, yeah, man. I've got an Amish background. That's right. <laughs> so yeah, tell me about, I, I don't know too many like people from an Amish background. Okay, so, so yeah, I was born uh, to a family of six kids. And uh, when, uh, when I was six years old, my parents were excommunicated from the Amish, and we, we actually left the Amish. But you know how they say you can take the girl out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the girl. You've heard that. I guess that's a country yeah. song. I've heard that phrase somewhere. It's true about Louisiana, too. You can take well, Louisiana girl out of Louisiana, but you can't take the Louisiana there you go. out of it. Actually, As, you can't take a Louisiana girl out of Louisiana. They just stay here. <laughs> right. Well, it's totally true for the Amish. Uh, my parents are now in their 70s, and uh, they've done pretty well. You know, they left in their 30s. But we were basically raised ex-Amish slash Amish. And, you know, just, just this past week at Thanksgiving, we sat around and, and all of us kids traded stories of what it was like going from Amish to public school. And it, it's enough to make you cry and laugh at the same time because it's pretty tragic and weird. And it's hilarious because we were clueless. I mean, oh, insanely wow. yeah. clueless. Like we didn't know what a boy's bathroom versus a girl's bathroom was. And we would stand in front of the bathrooms. We didn't know how to read the signs or the symbols. We're trying wow. to figure out which bathroom to go in and just wait for someone to walk out so we didn't go in the wrong bathroom. Like we were that clueless. Wow. My brother just, I'd never heard this story. My older brother, David, said that he wore these type of, I guess the Amish wear, not quite moccasins sometimes, but but they wear some sort of slipper over their shoes to keep them from getting wet in the mud. And uh, in the Amish school, he would just, they would all pile it out by the door. So when he walked into public school, he didn't know where to put it. So he slipped it under the water fountain <laughs> and left it there all day. And of course, you know, they were confiscated. And he's like, where'd they go? And then he also said when he first drank from a water fountain, he didn't know what it was. So he just, he just basically put his mouth over the whole thing. <laughs> like swallowed the whole thing and then pushed the button, right? And then someone behind him is like, what are you doing? That's not how you drink out of a water fountain. Like we needed somebody to help us, but we were, you know, wow. pretty kind of pitiful. I didn't know what money was. And I was in first grade and they would, this is back when, you know, this is before they passed all these laws where you, you can't buy sodas and candies and all that at school. And so they would bring this cart around to the class with all these candies on it. And I couldn't understand why I wasn't allowed to get any candy. I didn't know what money was. I didn't understand what what people were doing to get candy. So do Amish communities not use money? No, they do. It's just that oh, my, okay. parents, my parents had no reason to teach us anything like that. Gotcha. Okay, yeah. Yeah, we were just... Wow. You know, the Amish live really simple. Like they live without yeah. electricity. Uh, I had hardly ever left the home by the time I was six. Like we'd leave the home to go visit other Amish families, but we wouldn't leave the home to go to the supermarket. Or, you know, definitely not me. They, I had never been to a supermarket or I'd probably never heard even modern music at that point. Wow. You know, for six years of my life, I'd never heard a drum beat. I'd never seen a TV screen. I'd never switched a light on and off. I mean, there's a lot that you just 
you don't think you're you're coming from a century or two in the past wow. into the modern world, and so the transition is is uh, well, it's stark. <laughs> I have a lot of <laughs> <No> memories <laughs> about that. You know, a lot of like fear based memories and like, oh my gosh, I didn't know what I was doing. Wow. My brother said he didn't know what bus to get on. Like he didn't understand which buses to get on. You know. And my parents themselves were pretty naive. Like they didn't even consider uh, driving us to school. So they just, from day one, they stuck us on the bus. And, you know, <laughs> it was wow. crazy. So you you hadn't listened to music um, before you left the Amish. What was the, what was your, you have some first experiences with music? Well, I mean, the Amish have s- hymns they hymns, sing. okay. And they're they're really old, uh, you know, three, four hundred, five hundred years old. Some of them probably came from the Catholic tradition. Yeah, and then were, they were taken in by the Anabaptists, and they sing without instruments. And we were old order Amish, so we sang without harmonies. But the <laughs> melodies are really broad. They they use the scale, and the Amish are really creative with their vocal delivery. In fact, I used to think my vocal influences, if you, if you listen to my music, you know, I have a certain vocal delivery that's very unique. I used yeah. to think that that I learned that maybe from Celtic music that I listened to as a teenager or maybe from Appalachian music that I listened to in my 20s. But I realized in the last few years when I listen to my dad sing and when I listen to, you can go to YouTube and you can listen to these Amish songs. I realized that my vocal delivery is basically just Amish. Wow. It's, it's just an Amish. and It's the way the Amish sing. They, will, they won't just sing a single melody line. Their voice will go up and down like really quick yeah. as they sing it because they're not using harmonies. They're not using instruments. So, so the voice is the instrument. And they wow. also, the Amish also, um, if you're a tenor like I am or if you sing high, then you're going to be put out front. So they have a caller who starts the song, and then the rest of the congregation will come in and sing along, and then there'll be a pause, and the caller will sing again by himself. It's always a male. Um, they're very patriarchal, but yeah. And uh, But it's beautiful music, you know, beautiful melodies. But that's the that's what I that's the only thing I listened to the first six years of my life, and then after we left the Amish in terms of music, uh, my parents regulated heavily what we could listen to. So I I remember uh, oh the Statley Brothers or something like that. Yeah, I don't like a quartet kind of thing, which I can't stand <laughs> now. But as a six year old, you know, pretty hip. 
Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't know if it's Statley Brothers. I don't know who the Oak Ridge Boys or something. Oak like, Ridge Boys. Yeah, yeah, Oak Ridge Boys maybe. Yeah, something like I that. I think I got into Little Oak Ridge Boys when I was six. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> We're related. What is it that that really got you into playing music? What really inspired you to not just want to listen to music, but actually? Yeah, well, a couple of things. Uh, So we left the Amish and we moved to eastern Kentucky. And as you can tell just by the couple of stories I told, not only were, well, just the entire family were, we were really naive. We didn't, we didn't know how to live in the modern world. And so we stood out everywhere we went. And uh, people were gracious to us. A lot, you know how people are. They they tend to like to help people. Most people do. Yeah. <laughs> Most people like to help others. And so we actually had a lot of people being kind to us. And somebody gave us a piano that we had in the home, and we didn't have any satellite TV. Like we had a TV, but it would sit dark in a corner, and unless we brought a movie home, which of course had to be like a cartoon or something simple. <laughs> and uh, we had a radio, but we weren't allowed to listen to it. Uh, unless it was NPR. And so I didn't have a lot to do in terms of entertainment, so I started learning to play piano. And I just, you know, at that time I was uh, maybe 11 or 12 or something. And I found out pretty quick that if I tried to play someone else's song, I sucked horrible. Like I, I sounded bad. I could hear how bad I sounded. And so what I did was I just started kind of making up my own tunes. And so that's when I started just playing with melodies but because I was allowed to listen to NPR, I discovered what's called the Thistle and Shamrock, which is this old, like this this Celtic station for an hour a week that will, will play like old Celtic songs. And so I discovered Robert Burns, which is actually, he's a great songwriter. And it's kind of cool that I found him as a teenager uh, because he's so good. He wrote like over 500 songs or so. He was uh, he was a Scottish in the 1700s. He... Uh, wrote a ton of songs, incredibly gifted songwriter. And a lot of his songs are still around today. You'll hear him in Irish and uh, Scottish folk traditions, uh, albums and so on. They'll have a lot of Robert Burns songs. So I discovered him and I started learning a couple of his songs and I started paying attention. And that's when I really wanted to start writing songs and start putting lyrics to melodies. Because I had written melodies, but I hadn't written any lyrics. That's when I started writing. By then I was probably 16 or so. From the wilds we gazed Saw your arched back Your lands parched and cracked We fashioned our swords Our guns, our shells A single blood drop A fallen war god Glistening red We saw ourselves
now that you're you're an adult making music who who have been some of your greatest songwriting influences well in the last 10 years uh, i can name two and that would be bob dylan and bruce springsteen but i didn't discover either one of them until after i was 30 wow yeah so i wrote pretty cheap songs up until the point that i discovered bob dylan and there's literally like a corner in my songwriting from the point that you could you can follow my songs up to when I discovered Bob Dylan. I might have written one or two decent ones before that. But after I discovered Bob Dylan, uh, the, the, yeah, my songs, Mars is the first song I wrote after Bob Dylan, and Mars is on the record. And it's a great song uh, in terms of lyrical content, uh, structure, conceptual content. And, and it's because... I, I remember talking to my friend Luke after I listened to Bob Dylan for six months. Nothing but Dylan for six months, right? That's all I listened to. I couldn't believe that I had never heard of this guy. And, I mean, I'd heard his name, but I hadn't really heard him. You know what I mean? And uh, I told Luke, I said, I'm going to write a song like Bob Dylan. And Luke was like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, I'm going to layer a song. It's going to be about the planet, but underneath that, it's going to be about the God of war. And underneath that, it's going to be about the apocalypse and terraforming and so on. So I, I write this song. And Pretty lofty concept. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was like, I learned a little bit from Dylan. And then after my Dylan phase, which has never really ended, but I go in spurts, you know, I started listening to Springsteen. And I started with The Ghost of Tom Joad because I like folk music. And so The Ghost of Tom Joad, I listened to that record in 2008, um, the summer of 2008, and I've been strongly influenced by his voice as well. Wow. But I don't write like either one of those guys. Uh, That would be wrong to say. I don't. But I think that discovering both Dylan and and Bruce uh, was very influential for, for my writing to get better, you know? Yeah, you know, I did a... It's been interesting these last uh, couple of years. I've been collaborating with a, a local <clears throat> Episcopal church where we we've done we did a Eucharist one year, uh, just a, basically about ten or twelve U two songs in their oh, Episcopal yeah. mass, and then uh, we did. I remember one. that. I remember you posting, and you did some Dylan yeah. stuff. Yeah, well, we did a Dylan one back in September, and then earlier this year we did a, a Van Morrison one. And then I've even done one on Tom Petty at at my own church. But I got to tell you, as fun as those things have been, and then I, you know, with the Bob Dylan one, I also taught a class on Bob Dylan for six weeks there as well. But I got to tell you, it's, it really, as fun as it is to play those songs live, digging into, you know, taking 10 or 15 songs from Bob Dylan and really digging into them and studying them, like, I, I, I definitely feel like going through that process. I mean, even with Van Morrison, uh, I've always liked Van Morrison, but I never studied him. And uh, boy, it's it's just it's an education. It it I, I feel like I've grown as a songwriter just having these moments to. And we and we even did one on the Beatles as well, which again, mm-hmm. I've always liked the Beatles. Never actually studied them, and it's like I, I came out a better musician, better songwriter. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, you know. Yeah, so. one of the things that blows me about Dylan blows my mind about Dylan, and, and you and I mentioned this even before we started recording, is like the song My Back Pages he wrote oh, at yeah. 22. <laughs> so here's a 22-year-old 
who coins the phrase, but I was so much older then, I'm younger than that now, which is just a brilliant phrase. But then when you look underneath why he's saying that, you know, he's got that, he's got a line in there, excuse me. <clears throat> in a soldier's stance, I aim my hand at the mongrel dogs who teach. Yeah. Fearing not, I become my enemy in the instant that I preach. You know, here's a 22-year-old who realizes that his judgment towards the other turned himself into the very thing he was judging, yeah. which is a phenomenal insight. And, you know, if we're fortunate, we learn that at some point in our life. But most of us don't see that until our 30s or 40s after we've been banged up a bit. Yeah. And here's a 22-year-old who, who gets this insight. And I wish... You know, I would love to take all of these people who are sincere but are politically certain, like they just have this political certainty, and we find them on the right and we find them on the, the left, you know, who know they're right and they're never wrong, and like spend an hour or two with my back pages. Yeah. <laughs> you know, seriously, like lose a little bit of the certainty, realize that if you're that certain, you're really no different than your enemy. Yeah. Crimson flames tied through my ears Rolling high and mighty traps Pounced with fire on flaming roads Using ideas as my maps We'll meet on edges Soon said I Proud neath heated brow Ah, but I was so much older then I'm younger than that now Half-wracked prejudice Leaped forth Ripped down all hate I screamed Lies that life is black and white Spoke for my skull I dreamed Romantic facts of musketeers Foundationed deep somehow ah, But I was so much older then I'm younger than that now young 
and at the mongrel dogs who teach. Fearing not I'd become my enemy in the instant that I preach. My existence led by confusion boots, mutiny from stern to bow. Ah, but I was so much older then. I'm younger than that now. Yes, my guards stood hard when abstract threats too noble to neglect deceived me into thinking I had something to protect. Find these terms quite clear, no doubt, somehow. Ah, but I was so much older than I'm younger than that now. It was 22, Crispin. <laughs> oh, like, no, no, I that was one of the songs that I, I did a class on that because I'm and, and I was thinking the same thing, like. This is, I, I remember how I was at 22. Oh, I know, right? <laughs> I was just adrift and, you know, just, I, ha I was opinionated, but uh, had freaking no wisdom. But, you know, I, I had, I, I was kind of, I had a bit of an insight this morning. I was listening to some of the tracks from my upcoming album, some mixes that um, my friend Bobby sent to me, um, who's, who's working on the mix down right now, and... It's interesting because even I, I realized like even a song that I wrote like two years ago, like I was tapping into something and I understood it at one level, but it's so weird because listening to it, I actually, I wrote that one song probably about three years ago, but now at this point in my life, it's like I'm starting to realize that song in a way that I didn't back then. Like it, yeah. it was almost, I believe I mean, that. I, I hate to use the word prophetic, but but it, it was certainly intuitive. It's like I was I was hitting on to something, tapping into something, maybe subconsciously or something mm -hmm. that I knew at one level, and I, I composed the song and then went through the process of recording it, and now here I am three years later and in a whole different set of circumstances, and I feel like this song is really speaking to where. I am at this moment, and yeah, I and I, I can't help that. but wonder if that's part of what even Bob Dylan, his insight. I mean, even even another song he wrote around that time with God on our side. It's like holy yeah. crap, like that same like, thing, same thing. I've never yeah. heard a song so insightful <laughs> about that kind of polarization. You know, everybody thinks we got God on our side, but there's a problem. You know, we're all killing at each other, yeah. and uh, but yeah, I, I think that's one of the wonderful things about songwriting that and I can even look back on songs I wrote 20 years ago that I've I've changed a ton since then but yet I can I can still find some some insights there are songs I listen back to and I'm like I don't ever <laughs> I'm embarrassed sure. of but there's sure. a few where you hit a, a vein of gold that that you, you hit on truth and I think you hit on transcendence I, yeah, I was interviewing I this guy uh Brian Stoltz a few episodes back, and I love what he said about working with Bob Dylan. He says, you know, the, the secret of Bob Dylan is he just tells the truth. That's it, really. is He's just telling the truth. Um, and 
it can't really be co-opted by the left or the right or the, right. you know, like it defies all that. Mm-hmm. And that's why it stood the test of time where so many other artists get so bad, you know, like I've, I've heard tons of great songwriters and artists who have created beauty, but then they start getting so into politics that it's like, it's kind of like the Tom Cruise phenomenon. As good of an actor as Tom Cruise is, his personal life gets in the way, and it's like, yeah, you just don't want to watch. <laughs> and well, I, I think that's part of the the tension as a songwriter. It's like trusting that what you're saying, maybe everybody's not going to get it, maybe even in your lifetime, uh, but maybe there's a few people that will get it. And 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 the meaning that comes through in in more implicit ways. Uh, through the lyrics, uh, has a chance to to really transform somebody's perspective in a way that if you just come out and say, you know, vote for Trump or hate Obama or, <laughs> or whatever the the thing no. is that you know, I yeah, I think you're touching on something that it it means more to me the older I get, and um, I don't want to discourage people who are bent towards politics or who feel that that's their place of service. Cause I think that's a wonderful thing. Like anything, yeah. you know, whether it's the trades or politics or teaching or whatever. So we, I, I would certainly never want to discourage someone who's bent that way. Uh, and at the same time, I would say that there's, I believe there's something better than politic. And I think it's art because I think the beauty and truth that we find in art uh, transcends our tribal sensibilities. It yeah. does something to where if you know if you want to persuade someone to vote a certain way, you're going to end up lecturing them. But if you can just let them be who they are and then create something beautiful that compels them to fall in love, you'll get them to start voting and acting and behaving in a way that's better anyway. Uh, Because the truth, if it really is the truth and it really is beautiful, will be compelling in and of itself. And I don't think it needs our help. I I just don't think it does. And I think that's what we find in our great artists is, is like you said, all Bob does is tell the truth. And I think if we tell the truth and it's and if it's beautiful, it'll com- it'll be compelling, yeah. and we don't have to work for the the Democrats or the Republicans or whoever else. We don't have to work. I mean, we can, but it's there's a better way, I yeah. think. Well, I, I think pr- probably one of the the greatest experiences of music, even if you're not a musician and you just listen to it, it's 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 transcendence, you know. But you can't. Transcendence is not something you can force on people, you know? No, <laughs> like it, it's it, an invitation. It's, it's really like hospitality. It's it's setting the table. It is mm-hmm. it is producing something beautiful that's an invitation. It, you can mm-hmm. you can hear it or not. You um, can join or you can leave. Yeah. yeah. But if you do pay attention, um it's it, it may it may change your life. Mm-hmm. Maybe in subtle ways, maybe in big ways. Well, there's this um there's this piece of music that I love. I listen to a few times a year and I love telling people about it because it's been so influential for the way, uh, actually it's been influential in the, in the way I wrote the last song on my record, Born 2. Uh, 
So uh, Henrik Gorecki, I think, was a Polish composer who passed away a few years ago, but his third symphony, it's called A Symphony of Sorrowful Songs. It's about an hour long, and there's a YouTube video of it that I that when I listen to it, you know, a few times a year, I'll sit down and I'll put it up on my screen, and I'll watch it. Uh, <clears throat> and I think it was the last one that he was actually able to be present at, or one of them. But anyway, in this symphony, uh, it's he took uh, words and prayers that would have been written on the walls and the barracks of the concentration camps throughout different areas of Germany and he put them to music and it's it's incredibly beautiful wow and so uh, and it'll make you weep now the first half of the symphony is nothing but just this uh, quite a bit of confusion and and not quite a bit but there's a little bit of confusion in the way that he does it right so it's not uh, intuitive necessarily and it's there's no vocal in the first half and a lot of repetition. But then when he gets into the vocal, I remember the first time I heard it, it's sort of intuitive and sort of not. So you have to listen to it a few times before it really starts grabbing you. Um, but just the idea, the concept of what he did is the sort of thing that really moves me. And I think that something like that is more... Uh, I don't know. I think it's more compelling and more prepared to change the heart for good than to just tell someone a history lesson. Yeah. You know, and I guess in the at the end of the day, that's kind of that's where I want to go. I want to go in that direction. So when I wrote Born Two, which is the last song on my album, I knew I wanted to deal with questions of mortality and immortality and questions of finality. So uh, scientists predict in two or three hundred trillion years that all the stars will finally burn out. And when all the stars are burned out, there will be nothing left but absolute zero in terms of temperature. And there will be no light. And of course by then the universe will have expanded so far anyway that the only stars, if you were alive, the only stars you'd be able to see would be the ones right next to you because they're so far apart from one another. But they're all going to die out anyway, and then everything's going to die. So, you know, I wanted to deal with the question of whether that would be the end of consciousness or not. Um, and so I wrote a song uh, about that. I wrote a song that with a conversation between nihilism, or the, the dying universe, and consciousness. And, um, and I don't really give an answer, but within the song is what you, is like what you mentioned, is that reach for transcendence that I think human beings have, that our faith traditions teach us that we can tr tr uh, transcend, you know, such an end. So that's what wow. I tried to do. And Yeah, I... Oh, and and at the, well, at the very end, taking, taking a lesson from Gorecki, what I did was I drew uh, nine prayers from all over the world. So I got a, you know, Buddhist, Taoist, uh, Hindu... Uh, Islamic, Christian, Jewish, and even an agnostic prayer, First Nations prayer. And I put them under the music so you can hear my vocal, but you can't really discern what I'm saying, which was, of course, intentional and symbolic. And so it plays out the, the song, the record ends that way as it just kind of fades into nothing. 
And so you're left with the question of whether consciousness will transcend or whether it will die. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. It's not really anybody's favorite song, maybe one or two people's, but, but I thought it was worth doing.
We've come a long way from being a six-year-old Amish kid to, to do an album on uh, science and space and existential yeah. questions. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Sure have. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm certainly. I think I've had a bit of you know I've I've I'm really into science. I love reading about science, I know you but do. I think that there is unfortunately a dogmatism in a lot of the scientific community that is like, you know, we figured things out or, you know, whatever we can verify by an experiment or, um, you know, that, that we can establish this as truth, even though it's going to most everything that we've discovered gets overthrown at some point. By new but the, yeah. you know, the, the, the big question that nobody's found an answer to, which to me is probably the most important question is the problem of consciousness. Yeah, you know, the big the problem, but, you know, the and difference. there's no doubt to me that when you look at, um, you know, I read William James book last year, varieties of religious experiences, you know, and he's mm -hmm. just, he's just documenting. This is, I guess, 1905 when the book came out, but he spent a lot of time compiling stories of people who had these mystical religious experiences. Some of them were just like out of the blue, some of them were like under anesthesia. Um, some of them were in religious settings. Some of them uh, were believers. Some of them were atheists. But the interesting thing was that it seemed like most of the time, anybody who had these kind of transcendent experiences, it changed their whole life for the good. And it, and it seems like the people, I mean, whether it's Buddha or Jesus, uh, you know, great spiritual um, figures, mm -hmm. Um, they, they, not, not that they all say the same thing, but there is certainly a, a thread in this, that, that people who have these kinds of experiences of transcendent, that where their conscience mm -hmm. or consciousness is, is opened up a bit, um, they all come back saying, you know, very similar things, you know, like <laughs> love and right. compassion and empathy and, you know, it, it, it I don't know of people who have those kinds of experiences who come back and then are just like dogmatic and want to cut the world up into pieces and fight over stuff. You know, it, nope. it, it has That's a way right. of putting things into perspective. And I, I think as a, as a lover of both science and spirituality, I am a bit encouraged that I, I feel like in the last few years, there's starting to be maybe a loosening of the dogmatism a bit on the scientific side to where, you know, maybe we can maybe we can start factoring in what role consciousness actually plays in all this stuff because you know if you don't figure that out not not that you're ever going to figure it out who knows but uh yeah i mean i've i've talked to people who think that we will figure out consciousness i doubt it i do I, too <laughs> I, I don't know how you could figure something i mean cuz you're a conscious being trying to figure out how you're conscious it's like a it's circular but that being said i could be wrong uh, and then in terms of science dogmatism, I think I know what you're talking about. I mean, I find it in certain scientists, but then, you know, then you have like your Carl Sagan's, who was an atheist, and who was pr he was pretty strong opinionated about his, his thinking, and yet, because he had this vulnerability in him towards beauty and art, yeah, there's an openness in Sagan. You find an openness in Sagan that you don't find in, say, Richard Dawkins, which... Yeah, you know, I find Dawkins pretty boorish, but not Sagan at all. Now I yeah. can listen to Dawkins, and I find some of his things interesting, but 
you know, he's just so hard-lined and opinionated. And in Sagan, I find this, this, this love of beauty and this love of art that I can resonate with. And I think Sagan is a great example of what I was saying earlier. Oh, yeah. You know, if because as when I was 22 or 23 and I discovered Carl Sagan, here I was, ex-Amish, raised evangelical, Southern Baptist, you know, taught all sorts of things that should have kept me away from Carl Sagan. <laughs> Seriously. But even as I was reading the book, I'm like, I should be hating this. I was reading Pale Blue Dot. But I found it so compelling, and the reason for it was because of the beauty. And I, and I think that, you know, again, that illustrates that if we can, if we can say what we want to say, but put beauty first, yeah. I think we'll get, we'll get way more uh, influence and, and we'll, we'll get a result that we're actually looking for versus just trying to get people to believe what we want to believe. Yeah. I have never read Carl Sagan, any books by him, but I do have to say, I did feature a bit of a clip from that uh, pale blue dot. Um, mm -hmm. I guess it was a clip from Nova where he's narrating the thing yeah. and you're seeing that the intro. Earth and, that's very famous. Yeah. And this is us, you know, that, that and intro. that is, that is one of the, that is, that is a perfect example of something that is, um, yeah, it's leading with beauty. It's leading with, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I think just that one little three minute clip, man, I mean, if you pay attention, it's, uh, wow. It, it starts, it starts resonating with the, you know, the stuff inside you, you know, it and, does. and it's, it's truth, it you know, wh whether, whether, yeah, I'll just stop there. <laughs> well, and you know, I mean, I could talk about Sagan for days. I mean, he's, he's probably the main reason I, I wrote a concept album on space. And for, I mean, from the, from the time I read Pale Blue Dot, my, I was, I underwent a conversion of sorts, Crispin, because here I was, I was probably looking for it. And I was certainly open to it, but I abandoned certain ways of thinking after that book. And I started composing space songs immediately. Like within a week, I started writing some space. Now, the, the first one I wrote didn't make it on the album because it's more of a folk hymn. But the second one I wrote made it on the album, which is Diamond. And, and that would have been in 2002 or so. Wow. And yeah, it's a long time ago. But it so radically shifted my thinking, and, and I began to believe, which was Sagan's message, that human beings, should, that we should turn our eyes towards the stars, um, but in a good way, uh, because unless we kill ourselves, which of course we're trying to avoid, and one, turning our energy towards a good thing like terraforming or, or, or you know, space exploration will keep us from killing each other because we have something on our hands to do. Uh, but if we can avoid from destroying ourselves, we can avoid that. Uh, Sagan believed that we would end up uh, in the stars. And I think he's right. And I think it's a great message and it's, it's worth reiterating. So that's why I, I wrote this record. So let's talk about the record for a minute mm -hmm. because uh, did you go in with the idea I want to do a concept album of space or is it just that's what you found fascinating you've been writing these songs for years about space and then finally you're like wow I, I guess I've got a concept album here. oh I've got I've got a lot of songs no I I've, I've written songs that are the opposite end of the space record I've got folk murder ballads 
that are Appalachian murder ballads and are gruesome and bloody, right? Oh, Which is a right tradition. On. It's it's a uh, murder ballads is a is a genre that's a very old genre. Yeah, and it comes from illiterate people who, who which I, I just kind of sidetrack, but I, I love this subject because uh, the people who gave us murder ballads were usually, uh, at least in in the U.S., were Appalachian era, area, and they were illiterate. They didn't have libraries, and of course, this is before TV and radio, and so their entertainment was music, and they would get together on Friday or Saturday nights, and they would you know drink and and play music, and of course. Like any entertainment, they had some rated R material, and their rated R material is really rated R. If you hear some <laughs> of these old murder ballads, it's like, wow, <laughs> they're pretty rough. So, yeah, I've got stuff like that, uh, and I've got other things that I've written too. But I had, after I read Sagan, I had every once in a while I would write a space song, and it would depend on the melody, depend on the mood I'm in, but they just kept coming. And in the end, I had probably 15 or 20, and I chose nine. And some of them I wrote before making the album, too, because I need them. For instance, uh, my buddy, Brent Burden, says to me when he finds out I'm making this concept album, he says, Sam, uh, you got a concept album on space, but you don't have anything on extraterrestrials? And I'm like, damn, he's right. (laughs) So I was like, shoot. So I start playing with ideas. and, uh, And then on my birthday... In, on May 4th, I get this incredible melody that just dropped in my lap. And the next day, I put lyrics to it, and the song is Found You. And it's really, and it's about discovering ETI. But I wrote it in a way so, okay, ETI being extraterrestrial intelligence. I imagine what it would be like if I were a known, like if I were me, which is kind of a no namer, and I was working at SETI or in the future sometime, and I'm the first one to make contact, what that would feel like. Now, just imagine that you're the guy or girl that gets to make first contact, right? You can already feel the emotions <laughs> and you think about it. Yep. And so I just just embodied those emotions, and I wrote this great song that just kind of fell in my lap. It was weird. I'd been Before that, I'd been writing another song called We'll Fly Away that's on the record, but that song took me nine months to write and, and found you took me... 15, 20 minutes. <laughs> it's like, what? Those are the best ones, man. <laughs> yeah, dude, it just came out. But yeah, to answer your question, uh, I began to assemble these songs, Crispin, and I realized I had a concept album. Judge, you know I wasn't winning 
first perceive tomorrow's promise Or the lips that first call songs out from the ruins I'm the one who's standing here for every human I found you curious when you're writing about first contact did you have a an, an an idea in your head of what these extraterrestrial intelligence look like okay so this is a great i'm so glad now i'm excited this is a great <laughs> question because i'm a huge fan of, of stanley kubrick oh yes major uh, he's my favorite director uh, 2001 is my favorite film i've watched it probably nine or ten well ten times now because we watched it a couple of months ago or a month or two ago uh, Matt Nall, my brother Glenn, and I get get together every year. And by the way, Matt is the drummer and co-producer of my record. Glenn is the guitarist on my record, and me, we get together every year and watch 2001 once a year. So we've been doing that for a long time. <laughs> but so when I was writing "Found You," or before I started writing it, I kept thinking, how do I describe this ET? Right? How do I describe it without just just screwing up? Yeah. And like every time I would, you know, I started th- playing with the idea of talking about uh, a thousand hues in, in one eye or whatever, you know, like I was like thinking about, okay, I can make it look beautiful. But, you know, that's just idealistic. God knows it might be ugly. And it's like, but I don't want to sing about something ugly. And then it's, and then I finally was like, I'm an idiot if I try to describe this thing. So rather than try to describe it, I'm going to describe the joy of contact, right? The, what, what is it underneath human beings that drive us forward into the unknown where there's risk and perhaps death or there's great reward? And we don't know which we're going to find, but we're just driven towards it, right? That's, that's what exploration is. We don't, you know, most first explorers die and yeah. there's a good chance that the first uh, colonization on Mars is going to die. Maybe not. Maybe we'll, we'll be careful. But there's a good chance that they're, they're all going to perish. But eventually we'll figure it out and we'll colonize Mars. I think it's, it's bound to happen as long as we don't kill ourselves. So I wanted to touch on what is that thing. And uh, again, when I wrote the first, so the, I write the melody on, on my birthday. The next day I put the verse lyrics to it. I send it to my friend Brent, and I'm like, here you go. He's like, oh, this is beautiful, but your chorus is, is it sucks. And at the chorus, all, you know, all I said was like, so I can't remember what I said, but it was a boring melody. And I'm like, oh, okay. And so I sit down and I write the current chorus, which is your why we leave home, why, we're, uh, why we've always roamed, why we're not alone. You're the temples crumbling, the whole world rumbling, you're not alone, right? So I write this real simple wow. chorus that just puts its finger on every person can relate to that. You're why we leave home, right? We all want to discover something beyond what we've been given. And we, uh, and I knew that even though I was writing about ETI, I was writing about something bigger. You know, you could, you could put that into a spiritual framework. You could put it into a lover's framework. 
and and that's what I liked about it is depending on what you yeah. bring to it. If you want to if you want to bring a lover's concept to it, you can. If you want to bring uh, a spiritual concept to it, you can. Or if you like me, if you want to bring just a, a human sense of why we're searching and what we're searching for, you can do that too. And so, you know, and that song is 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 kind of a pop song, so it's done really well. People like well, it. I think that's the that's why it is such a good song. I, I think that um, yeah, it it allows for it it doesn't force you into um, a certain space. Like you kept it open enough that that it can be. Interpreted. Oh yeah, yeah. So so I forgot to say. Oh, so you asked me about describing it. So oh, yeah. <laughs> after I write "Found You," I read the making of two thousand and one. Stanley Kubrick's masterpiece, which came out on the 50th anniversary of 2001, which I think was in 2018. Mm -hmm. So I read this book last year, and I wrote Found You in 2017. And Stanley Kubrick spent like a year and a half, two years, he and Arthur C. Clarke, drawing and erasing, drawing and erasing what an ETI would look like. And they just kept like, and finally Kubrick was like, this is ignorant. If I create a, uh, an ETI, if it doesn't already look stupid, in 10 years it's going to look stupid, in 20 years it's going to look ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> Kubrick's a master. He's so wise, right? And so what he did, what did he do? He created a monolith, right? Mm -hmm. This rectangle, this, this black, completely yeah. black rectangle. And that's the ETI. That's the symbol for ETI because Kubrick understood that a symbol won't age and it won't look stupid. And so in, in the, in instead of creating a, an ETI, which movies like to do, but then always, you know, whatever, 10 years later, you're like, hey, that's right. ridiculous. Uh, he created something that's timeless. And now here yeah. we are 50 years later and you watch that film and it's just so relevant. It's awesome. So I, when I read that, I'm like, yeah, I made the right decision. Yeah. I didn't do definitely. it. I didn't do it with quite the conscious effort that Kubrick <laughs> did. But yeah. I tell you, yeah, Arthur C. Clarke, man, I, he's definitely... I, I love sci-fi, and I, I I went through a phase probably probably about a year or two ago where I was binge listening anthologies of Arthur C. Clarke stuff, and that guy is. I've heard I've actually brilliant. never read a book of his. I need to read his books. Oh I've yeah, never yeah. Read a book. He he's yeah, just because uh, I don't think Kubrick would have no would have been able to pull it off because Clarke had has such a. Um, interesting way of combining good science with uh imagination yeah and um wow. well that's why kubrick hooked up with arthur c clark is he had the the best rep yeah uh but yeah they um yeah it's a uh, you know the reading the making of i learned a lot about obviously about it behind the scenes and i need to read some arthur c clark because i haven't read it I, I don't typically read books because i read so slow i like to watch films instead that's why i do audiobooks yeah i've been told that you do it while you drive yeah it's great you do it sitting around the house sipping your well, bourbon typically what i do yeah you know sometimes sipping bourbon uh I, I typically my my you know when the weather's decent which the good thing about Louisiana, a good chunk of the, the year, yes. I can sit out on my back porch. And so it's not about 10 o'clock at night, I'll go out on my back porch and, and listen to a book or a podcast for an hour in the dark. And uh, sometimes I see fireflies or stars, but it's a, it's a good way to, I love, 
I get a lot more out of audiobooks. I think this gets partly to how music has shaped me, you know, mm-hmm. in, in a formative way is, you know, I don't read music very well, at least, uh, probably at a first grade level. Um, <laughs> but I'm I've been, I've been you. playing by ear my whole life and yeah, I've played with so many different kinds of, you know, from gospel music to jazz and to you blues, definitely have a rock. sound yeah you definitely and, have a sound yeah and so you you always have to be you know and, and the thing is playing around the new orleans area nobody I, like i play with bands all the time that you don't get a chance to practice it's like they'll send you some songs and and then good luck and and so you have to develop a way of of paying attention to things and so i don't know for me um, I know a lot of people are like, well, I can't pay attention when I'm listening to stuff. But for me, it's like, that's my primary way of, of one of the best ways that I have of learning. So it's like, and it also, you know, sitting on my back porch in the dark, it allows my mind to kind of wander into different ways. And, and I find so many times, even as a songwriter, uh, like I was listening to a podcast, I, I think it was, uh, Joe Rogan a few years ago and they were talking about he, he was talking about that that movie Ex Machina and I've always been interested in artificial intelligence yeah that's yeah. that's and and I'm I'm just I, I, I pause the episode and I'm just kind of thinking about it and then I start thinking you know I wonder if maybe if she, machines ever become conscious if that's when you wrote that song right yeah if, it, if maybe yeah. they don't end up like the Terminator or Ex Machina or something like maybe they have the same problems that we do. They, they have to work out relationships. They got to work jobs that are boring. They got to, they got to search for meaning. And, and right. I thought, why not? You know? And then, then I wrote that song. When and you wrote a children's book, which I read to my daughter. She loves it. Awesome. Yeah. We've read that book. I don't know. A dozen times probably. Oh, too cool. Well, yeah. Yeah. I bought that book know. from you. Yeah. It's, it's a great book. When the machines became teens, they found better things to do. Like hang out at the arcade with the machines, ditching school. They listened to loud rock music and dressed to fit in. Those were the days when the machines started living. When the machines woke up. Machines grew up, they were just like their creators, working jobs as lawyers and nurses and museum curators. And then on the weekends, the machines would go out bowling. They'd hang out with their machine friends and keep the party rolling. When the machines woke up, they had relationship problems. They'd ask their therapist for the ways that they could solve them. They'd read books and take classes on self-improvement. And they even started their very own religious movements. When the machines woke up. When the machines woke up, they fought with one another. They fought over possessions, over fashions and their colors. They waged long wars and raged through their conflicts. Like in all their favorite movies they used to watch on Netflix. When the machines woke up, they found reality aboard. So they looked for distractions, always wanting something more. They created new ways of how to avoid 
The constant drudgery of having to be employed When the machines woke up So you want to talk about a couple of other songs? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm just, I'll just throw one out there. So there's another song. I told you I write murder ballads. I wrote a murder space ballad. Murder space ballad. Yeah. Like, you're, you're coming up with a whole new genre. You know, I was trying to come up with post-apocalyptic bluegrass when I did, when the machines <laughs> woke up, but I like. Yeah, it's, it's great though. I love it. Space murder that's, ballads. That's a good song. Yeah, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I wrote a space murder ballad. I, here's, I knew I wanted to, uh, sorry, sometimes I get jumbled in my words. So I was watching Nova one night, probably in 2010, maybe. And one of the shows, they start talking, they were talking about life and how life can exist. And I know you love science. I'm just, I love science. I love biology. I love everything about evolution. I love learning all that stuff. Anyway, they found these, they found these organisms at the bottom of the ocean that have never seen the sun they're just these little bitty organisms, and they live off the vents that come out, out of the ocean, like volcanic heat, right? And they'll go between freezing cold temperatures to like volcanic temperatures back and forth, and they can survive both of them. And they get their sustenance not from the sun, which is the rest of life, but they get their sustenance from the ground, right? So, but they're, they're very simple organisms they've not evolved very far at all they don't have eyes they don't need eyes that sort of thing um i think like almost like worm like i think but anyway they jump from that to europa the moon of jupiter right or is it saturn i think it's jupiter i think it's jupiter's moon oh yeah yeah so they jump from that and they say hey you know europa is a moon of ice and underneath the ice is an ocean of water. And underneath the ocean is a core. And perhaps there is life there that evolved, just like this life on Earth right here. And perhaps it's intelligent. Like, we don't know how long it's been there. Maybe there's life there. But why don't we send something up there to just look and see, right? And yeah. I'm like watching this, and I'm like, ah, oh, this is a song. Like you, right? Listen to a book. <laughs> I'm like, this is a song. And I'm like, oh, yeah. And the same friend I mentioned earlier, I'm like, I call Luke Beeling and I'm like, Luke, I'm going to write a song on Europa. I'm going to have a bunch of astronauts show up, but the planet's going to kill them all. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and so it took me a year or two to find the melody. But once I found the melody, the song came pretty quick. And um, so I write this song and it starts out with the, the first line is, I will live and will not die is what she told me. But, I, but now the dark oceans of her eyes grow still and frozen. I lay her out in the open clear, still suited and covered. Did she know those words were the last I'd ever hear? So it's this guy burying wow. the last remaining astronaut besides himself. I'm assuming it's a guy. It could be a girl. But he's burying the last remaining, but he's not burying her, just laying her out in the open, right? And then the rest of the songs, the con he, can, he contemplates why the hell did they come up here to this barren goddess whose womb is barren and whose bitter, whose heart is bitter cold, you know? So the chorus says, in your arms, ancient goddess, no sun will rise to ease the cold. And from this vantage of darkness, a pale blue star's light is fading low. And wow. yeah, so anyway, so I write <laughs> this, I write this murder ballad on space and then I send it to a mutual friend of ours called Dan, you know, Dan Wilt. Yeah. So I, 
So I sent it to Dan Will. And Dan hits me back about an hour later. And he says, Sam, you're not going to believe this. But tonight, my wife was doing whatever, and she usually wants to hang out with me, but tonight she didn't want to, so I had some free time. And normally when I have free time, I end up playing music or I write. I never watch TV, and even if I watch TV, I don't watch Netflix. He says, but for some reason, I sit down and I turn on Netflix. And if I watch Netflix, he was like, I don't ever watch sci-fi, but I just go to this weird sci-fi movie, and I just fast forward through the whole thing, and I keep thinking to myself, why am I watching this movie? It's a B movie. It's boring, but whatever. And I'm just fast forward. And he was like, and I don't know. I don't stop. I just keep going to the end. I get to the end and I pick up my phone and it says email from Sam Europa. And he says, and the movie I just watched was called Europa. I saw that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then he says, and I heard in my heart, tell him to go for it. Wow. And so this was when I was contemplating making the record. Yeah. So I went for it. Awesome. Yeah. I'm glad you did. <laughs> I'm too. <laughs> I will live and will not die Is what she told me Now the dark oceans over her eyes grow So now, now that you got the album done, mm -hmm. you you're going on the road. You got a you got no. a, a a space Amish space band, ex Amish space band. I have a great band. In fact, let me give them some shout out. So uh, it wouldn't be right without it. So this record would not be what it is without my really good friend Matt Nall, who. Which, by the way, the intro and outro music on this episode for every episode. He's playing the drums on that yes. as well. So, so he's playing Shout the drums on my entire record. But not only that, he helped co-produce it. Matt came up with some of the best ideas on the record, some of them. He's great. He's great. Uh, but not just that. Matt has a love for space, philosophy, and science. And for two years, we probably met once a month in my shop, drank bourbon and smoked cigarettes, 
and talked about making a record. <laughs> and, and in that process, I would start, I would write songs or show it to him and he would always give me feedback. So Matt was really helpful for me to get this done. And then my brother Glenn plays guitar on it. And then Patrick Schaffner plays bass on it. And these guys worked for free. Now I ended up giving Matt some money. He didn't want it or ask for it, but I ended up giving him some money just because he spent a little extra time helping produce yeah. it. Um, but yeah, we're not hitting the road because we all have full-time jobs and we all have families and kids. And, uh, you know, that's the place in life we are. Well, say we, we had first contact made and a, a spaceship lands in Campbellsville, Kentucky. And they said, you know, our, our entertainment on this ship is, is, um, we're, we're a little bored. We've been listening to this stuff for three light years and, um, we need some new music. Uh, we heard you, you got a guy over here who's done a space album. Would you, would you and the guys, or, or at least you, would you, would you jump on the ship and yeah. go into the unknown? I would. Well, I've got a family now. Uh, you know, my wife and I, we talked about this <laughs> because we, we started watching the Mars Netflix series. Yeah. Uh, which the, uh, the documentary side of that series is amazing. The drama side, not so much, whatever. So we, yeah. we ended up, we kind of petered out for us. But we start, but in the process of starting it, I was like, man, it'd be amazing to go. I'd want to go. And she was like, why? And I wouldn't want to go. And I'm like, well, because I have a family, I wouldn't go. But if I were single... I don't care if I died on the other end, I would go, you know? Yeah. So the answer is yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> right on. I would love to hear the songs that would come from that if they ever brought you back to earth too. You know, I, I think that, I think that would probably be good for songwriting. They'd probably you would, the you best, would have some best, whole best new concepts. Ever. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is probably we've been going on here for uh, uh, we're, we're about to run out of time on Zoom, so uh, it's been really great talking with you. And and for people who want to listen to your album, it's it's on Spotify, Apple Music, mm -hmm. it's Silicone Boone, Silicone Boone. Yep, and mm -hmm. um, it's fantastic. And did you just have an, another single come out this week, or you got no, one coming out? no, no? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'll tell you one other thing. Uh, this is kind of weird. If you don't care if I tell you, uh, the the night that Born was released, which is the first song on the record, mm -hmm. which is a song about the Big Bang, my son was born. How cool is that? Yeah, I wrote wow. the song in 2012, you know, and we recorded it in 2017, and it's it released the same night as my boy being born kind of cool. see that's what i was talking about earlier yeah, you write man. something and then years later it comes to pass you know you might even think there's something underneath all this <laughs> i think i think there might be <laughs> <laughs> but yeah no uh uh no no singles out this week just the whole record will uh the whole record released at once it and it the whole record is out now well, or, no, it's it's out tomorrow morning. But by oh, the time tomorrow morning. Okay, this, so probably about yeah. the time this episode yeah. comes out, if yeah, I can get it all edited this, by tomorrow, it'll be out. It'll be out. Yeah. You can go on Spotify and listen to the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And if somebody wants, to, can they buy it if they want to? Like, yeah, they can if they want a hard copy. But it'll be a couple of weeks before I can get it. Okay. Can you still it's, sell it's albums on, on iTunes anymore? Yeah, um, I went ahead and bought CDs because we do do some live shows, and I want to have them yeah. available. I probably wasted my money. 
And then, you know, just bad timing for me. I already had someone reach out and say, hey, I want to give a friend of mine a Christmas gift by the 15th. And I'm like, yeah, I can't get you a CD by the 15th because I won't have them by the 15th. So You can burn them. You can find an old computer with a CD burner. There you go. (laughs) From the 90s. Well, say uh, uh, silicone. Uh, <laughs> I, I love what you're doing. I, I, Thanks, I, I'm glad. I, I really do have a sense right now, and in, in the with all the craziness in the world, with politics and religion, and and our lack of stewardship of resources on this planet, <clears throat> mm-hmm. I really do feel like you know what you're doing is. Uh, I think this is a time where we need good songs that, that break us out of the moment and, and help people see in a different way. And, and I, I, I'm glad you're doing that, man. Thanks, and, uh, man. Keep on doing it. Yeah, I will as best I can. that was an awesome conversation so I just want to mention something here Uh, I put up a playlist uh, on Spotify called Extra Crispy Playlist Extra Crispy Playlist you can go to Spotify type that in and it'll take you to the playlist and on that playlist I'm putting up songs that are featured or mentioned in the different episodes so I've got a bunch of the songs that were mentioned on the episode with uh, Brian Stoltz a few episodes back and I'm gonna throw a bunch of the Silicone Boone songs on here as well as maybe a few of the tracks that were mentioned as well so you can um, dig into some of the material and look up Silicone Boone it's a fantastic album really uh, I, I suggest like taking some time lay down, put some headphones on and listen to the album from start to finish. I know that's not what people do these days, but trust me, trust me. It'll be an hour worth your time. I don't know if the whole album's an hour, but it'll be good for you. All right, well, that concludes this episode. And uh, until next time, may all your conversations be extra crispy.